Welcome back to The Wise Man's Page, the daily podcast where we read a page of The Wise Man's Fear and then we talk about it. This is page 649, the final chapter before our next break, chapter 99, Magic of a Different Kind. By this point in my life, I'd earned myself a modest reputation. No, that's not entirely true. It's better to say that I had built myself a reputation. I'd crafted it deliberately. I'd cultivated it. Three quarters of the stories folk told about me at the university were ridiculous rumors I'd started myself. I spoke eight languages. I could see in the dark. When I was three days old, my mother hung me in a basket from a rowan tree by the light of the full moon. That night a fairy laid a powerful charm on me to always keep me safe. It turned my eyes from blue to leafy green. I knew how stories worked, you see. Nobody believed that I'd traded a cupped handful of my own fresh blood to a demon in exchange for an alar like a blade of Ramston steel, but still, I was the highest-ranked duelist in Dal's class. On a good day, I could beat any two of them together. That thread of truth wove through the story, gave it strength. So even though you might not believe it, you might tell it to a wide-eyed first-term student with a drink in him just to watch his face, just for fun. And if you'd had a drink or three yourself, you might begin to wonder. And so the stories spread. And so, around the university at least, my tiny reputation grew. There were a few true stories as well. Pieces of my reputation I'd honestly earned. I had rescued Fella from a blazing inferno. I had been whipped in front of a crowd and refused to bleed. I'd called the wind and broken Ambrose's arm. Still, I knew my reputation was a coat spun out of cobweb. It was storybook nonsense. There were no demons out there bargaining for blood. There were no helpful fairies granting magic charms. And though I might pretend, I knew I was no Taberlin the Great. Well, there you have it. Finally, Quoth admits it. Oh my god, he admitted it! Uh, my name's Nick. I'm Jordana. I'm one of the co-hosts of this podcast. <laughs> I'm Jeremy. I'm also one of the co-hosts of this podcast. This is kind of Quoth laying out, in some sense, one of the central premises of this novel, which is that when you hear a fantastical story, it might sound like like nonsense, but there might be some truth in it, and you kind of have to work to ferret out. Part of the, one of the, the magic things that stories can do is you, you have to kind of ferret out what's true and what's not. Yeah, and I, I think that this is a little bit of like the trick Rothfuss is playing writ large. Like I think that he's almost, it's like the, is it the prestige? I don't know. I, I, they made that up for the movie. It's not a real thing, but uh, Rothfuss is kind of going, you know, the, everything you've heard about quotes, everything that you've heard about any of these stories, uh, there is perhaps a, a lick of truth to it. Not necessarily the facts of it, not necessarily that like, you know, Lanra, did whatever he did and turned into Haliax. I, I can't remember anything about this book. I haven't read it in like three years. So I'm just as surprised as you when I, when I discover anything anymore about it. This whole book, this one in particular, uh, this act two book that we call the wise man's fear is comprised a, a lot of stories in a story. And I think that every time we get one of the stories, they're important. And I think it's important because in much the way that Quoth is describing here on this page, there is, a basis in truth to them. Of course, 
The other side of that coin, as Quoth is going to get into on the next page, is that this is a case where the truth of the story is every bit as fantastical as any of the fake stories he's made up about himself. And in some, and in fact, it's even crazier than anything he could possibly have imagined is true. Like this experience has completely upended his sense of what is reality and what is not, what is what you have to dismiss as, as fantasy and what you can't dismiss because it could be true. And in fact, he is very explicitly getting a couple of these things. He's very explicitly getting maybe not a coat spun of cobweb necessarily, but he is getting a cloak spun of uh, shadow. Uh, and there is a helpful fairy granting a magic charm. And in fact, you know what? He's about to meet a demon who's bargaining for blood as well. So I think uh, this is sort of priming us for the uh, the explicitly storybook stuff that Quoth is about to encounter. And it must therefore also make us question what of all the things that we have read about so far that Quoth has dismissed as impossible or ludicrous or couldn't really be true, what was what must we now re-examine? Because he didn't think Valerian could possibly be a real thing until he met her. Yeah, and it's funny because once she showed up, he was pretty like chill about it in comparison to everybody else. <laughs> well, and that is like remarked upon in the narrative, right? Like he we're we're meant to understand that that is unusual that he's not as freaked out as the rest of them are yes don't you have any notes on this page Shardana? no normally i would but i feel like we really covered everything there and i didn't butt it enough so it just it happened i'm sorry the only other thing that i guess we could talk about is that quoth really understands how these things spread as well not just what makes a good story but how they percolate so he's set up a lot of these rumors so that they can be told in a specific way. Like he doesn't expect anyone to believe them immediately, but he knows that it's the kind of thing that makes for a good story. If you're chatting over a beer with a sort of a wide eyed person who, you know, takes you very seriously when you josh with them, sort of a Jordana figure. Mm. Oh, great. Also though, I just realized I did have a note and it was that the, the nature of Quoth's stories and how he has like started a lot of rumors about himself and such and such sort of speaks to the nature of like truth as it exists in our like like actual world like sometimes you hear a crazy story about someone and you're like that can't be true but probably a little bit of it is i mean i i hear you jordana i um to me this speaks more of like real world stories like i don't know if there ever was a guy who went by the name of robin hood and had a band of various misfits but there probably were were outlaws in the in the forest at various points and uh same with like king arthur you know i know i'm these are all from the western canon but there's lots of there's lots of like stories that are fantastical here's one in the in the ramayana uh which is uh, an indian uh a long long in book of indian myths they they talk about at one point a bridge to a landmass that in real life was um where's amreen from sri lanka they talk about they like summon or discover a bridge to a, an island that in real life is sri lanka and there's evidence now that there was at one point a land bridge from the land from from the mainland of india to sri lanka in the story they built the bridge but in real life is there evidence that they 
Oh, so they found evidence of the bridge under the water that it actually was built and constructed and, and it's actually still there. So, you know, and like in the in the stories, I recall, it's been so long. It was like demons that built the bridge, right? Oh, yeah. Hanuman, the monkey god, built the bridge. The like, monkey people. Hanuman and the monkey people uh, built the bridge uh, to help Ram uh, get there. And so, you know, there's there's a basis in fact here where that there was a, a bridge that was built out there out to Sri Lanka at one point in the distant past. And maybe the truth of who built that bridge is lost, but germ of the story remains. There is something to it. And so you can kind of have these conversations and like wonder at, well, maybe it was the monkey people who. Uh, yeah, that's definitely like related. Although to me, the specific way that Quoth goes about constructing his own myth on purpose like he wants people to think about him a certain way, so he goes about making that happen. That to me smacks of like the famous figures from the old West, the ones who who weren't killed, inevitably ended up telling their life stories to some hack dime store novelist. And they of course told those stories, you know, they were like there was really a gunfight at the OK Corral and a bunch of people were killed, and like Wyatt Earp survived it, and he was like a famous lawman from the old West. But when he was telling his life story, you know, to the penny dreadful hacks who, who wrote it down, was he being entirely truthful or did he tell the story in a way that painted him in the best possible light? And when the, when that same guy was going around collecting like the accounts of people who knew Wyatt Earp, like, you know, they are not necessarily, you know, this is something that might've happened 20, 30 years ago or, you know, the people who are involved might still be alive and maybe wouldn't be too happy if you told the story in X way rather than Y way. So, like, these are people whose legends and whose the stories of their lives are constructed and kind of blown out of proportion from what they were, but, like, on purpose because the people telling the story about themselves have an agenda to promote. But, Jordana, it feels to me like you maybe had uh, a more specific example in mind. Is that correct? Not particularly. I just feel like, like I've definitely like met people who have told me like a story about something they did. And I'm like, it could be true, but it would be crazy if it was. And it's just like, you, you kind of have to take someone at their word, but you're also like, maybe I won't repeat this story just in case. Uh, this is related and perhaps related on a, a deeper level to the, the story uh, that we're reading. But uh, I'm reminded of the Paul Revere's ride, both the song and the act. Uh, in real life, there were a bunch of guys who carried the messages to all the towns. Uh, one of them was named Paul Revere, but he was just one of the guys. And there, there's a famous song, Paul Revere's Ride. Uh, and all the stuff he does in that song did happen, but it was all a different guy. It's just that Paul Revere's name fit the meter. Uh, so he's the guy who is now in all of you know American history is credited with single-handedly riding from town to town, informing them that the British were invading and getting them ready. But in reality, uh, it was him and a bunch of other guys who all worked together. But just this, because of the song, uh, the, the facts of history are, for all intents and purposes, changed. And does, doesn't that seem as a uh, to be relevant to the story we're telling? It does. But I guess my question is, do we know if that was Paul Revere doing some self-promotion or did that kind of happen independent of him? I'm going to look it up uh, because I'm interested now. My understanding is that it just happens to have been because uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow just just wrote it. 
in that way. The signal in the church was from Revere. The historical Paul Revere did not receive the lantern signal. He actually was the one who ordered it set up. He was rode over by others. He did not reach Concord that night. Longfellow gave sole credit to Revere for the collective achievement of three riders, as well as other riders whose names do not survive to history. I don't think it was necessarily uh, intended uh, by Revere himself, but it was just that this fellow Longfellow, for whatever reason, thought it would be a better story. It was how the cookie crumbled. Indeed. And we can crumble your cookies on tomorrow's page. Of? Duh. Oh, okay. Okay. Of, of the wind. Wind. Wind.